Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we'll jump right into the Torah text. Something new and different. God says to Moshe, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before I don't know what that English is. Hachirot in Hebrew, between Migdal and the sea, before Baal Tzaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Ve'amar paro, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are astray in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. And then George's favorite part, I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them that I may gain glory through paro and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yudhei And they did so. When it was told to the Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt, that the people had fled, Paro and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, what is this we have done releasing Israel from our service? So what is that word in Hebrew? That word is, read Ephrosus here, that word is ma, what? Mazot, what is this? Is what Paro says. And his courtiers say, Mazot, what is this? He ordered his chariot and took his force with him. He took 600 of his picked chariots and the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers and all of them. God stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites. And the Israelites were departing defiantly, biyad ramah, with an uplifted hand. The Egyptians gave chase to them and all the chariot horses of Paro. His riders and his warriors overtook them and camped by the sea near this place that I can't read in the transliteration. Pihachirot, in front of Baal As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to God. And they said to Moses, right? Mazot, what is this? Everybody's mazot. So I don't think I've ever really paid attention to that before, which is what's great about studying Torah your whole life because, right, Aviva Zornberg is going to show you things you did not see. So they said to Moses, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? Mazotasita, what is this you have done to us, taking us out of Egypt? So they, they claim they told him so. Is this not the very thing we said to you? We don't have that scene where they said this to Moshe in Egypt. Isn't this what we told you, that that better we serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness? What does Moshe say to the people? Al-tira'u, don't be afraid. Hityatzvu, you all know this word from Nitzav, right? Stand stand firm. Hityatzvu, or-u, and see at Yeshuat Adonai, the deliverance, the salvation of yod Yes, salvation is our word, people. That's our word. Asher ya'aselechem, what God will do for you hayom, today. Ki asher re'item et mitraim. This is a very interesting sentence that's very hard to translate comfortably out of the Hebrew. Ki asher re'item et mitraim hayom. Right? That's kind of tangled. Because for a share that you see Egypt today. <laughs> Clear, huh? Lo tosifu otam. You won't additionally see them again forever. Okay, what the heck? 
is that supposed to mean? Aviva Zornberg's going to talk about what this means. Um, so what does our English say? Stand by and witness the deliverance which God will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Okay. It's not a great translation, but okay, we're going to, we're going to just, we're going to leave it for now. Adonai yilachem lachem ve'atem tacharishun. Yudhei will fight for you. Y'all, shut up, essentially. Shut up, hold your peace. Okay, that's a lovely way to say, shut up. And God says to Moshe, Ma titzakelai. Ma, again, with ma. God says to Moshe, Ma titzakelai. What? You cry out to me? Ah, right? Speak to the people of Israel and let them move forward. And you lift up your rod out over the sea and it will split so the Israelites may walk on the Yabasha, on the dry ground. And of course, God is going to stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians. Um, and then we have the rest of this amazing incident, the rest of this story. The Egyptians, of course, come in and pursue them and then they get schmeist. Essentially, right? Okay, so we we kind of know that that part of the story. All right, and then we get the um, then we if you see here how it's written in the Torah. They reproduce it in the printed version. Um, you see how this appears, how the writing is different, the spacing is different. This is the Song of the Sea, right? If you look at it in the Torah scroll, these big spaces, these big white spaces um, with the blacks uh, written the way it is. Um, it looks like bricks, that those are white bricks. So it is a scribal tradition to preserve the understanding that this is them leaving um, the slavery that entailed them uh, working, of course, with brick and mortar. Okay. I'm sorry? Well, it's it's like, he, like, it, it, yeah. It, it, it doesn't suggest narrow. It, it's laid out normally in terms of how wide the column is. It's just how the, the lines are drawn, drawn. How the lines are calligraphed, where they're spaced, it leaves these big rectangular openings. Okay. Yeah, a lot of white fire. Okay. So what am I doing? All right. So first of all, let's, let's remember where we are, right? All right. So, we are, the Israelites are coming out, they are told, right, to encamp facing the sea. What is Pharaoh going to think? Pharaoh and the Egyptians will think they're trapped. There's nowhere for them to go. So he's going to think they're trapped. Pharaoh decides, mazot, what is this asinu we have done? That was a mistake. And so he goes after them. Um, now the people, right, are standing there and they are, understandably, terrified but what is their response to being terrified they complain they are sarcastic they accuse they complain and what have you done to us right everybody is what have you done all right so for Lawrence Kushner his way of talking about this is um, we read him last week if you recall we were, last week, he talked about the fact that all of this story is really about the transformation of consciousness. Right? Mark Fish, did I tell you? 
right up your alley. This is all about the transformation of consciousness. When we talk about going out of Egypt, we are not talking about a one-time event where we left slavery and were delivered, and yay, now it's a party. Chas v'shalom. Chas v'shalom. God forbid. This is a story about how tight, restricted, narrow, immature, you know, self-obsessed, ego-driven consciousness becomes liberated, becomes integrated, becomes responsible, mature, Kayla, becomes what we're all hoping to be someday, right? Actual, integrated, healthy, with a healthy ego, but also a healthy superego, honoring the id, like all those, that's what we hope to be. This is the story about how that happens, so for Kushner, last week he talked about, like, you know, there, stage one, then we talked last week, stage two was, okay, the destroyer is unleashed. Sometimes you have to just sit back. You've done what you can. You're doing your work. You're letting go, and you have to let go, let God, right? Is that what they say in the 12 steps, right? You have, there are times where you have to let go and trust that what you're doing is what you can do, and the rest is kind of up to the universe, and that we talked about last week was a destroyer. Right, taking care of Pharaoh. Where's Pharaoh in this model? Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh. Right, <laughs> Pharaoh's right here. We are our own enemy. What is the tightness, the restriction, the oppression, the slavery? It's our addictions, our proclivities, our habits, all those things, our compulsions, all those things that keep us from growth. We So we are in Mitzrayim, and we keep ourselves there because we let Paro win. Ah, hang on, hang on. I knew it. I knew it. All right, so I knew it was coming. Um, so Mark's got his hand up already, y'all at home. So the so Paro is here. And so when we deal with Paro, when we finally confront Paro, it is terrifying. Then we do our work. We put the blood on the door. We name it. We opt in. We get a therapist. We change our friend group, right? We we do whatever. We change careers, whatever it is. Like right? the blood is on the door, and we're ready to leave. And we have to turn it over at some point and say, okay, the universe will support me in this. God will support me in that. However you want to talk about it, whatever. That was last week. Kushner says that is the destroyer going out and dealing with the enemy. Okay. He says, in every case of liberating consciousness, there is a second and more terrifying confrontation. You get through realizing you've been abused. You get through realizing you've made some pretty terrible choices. You get through acknowledging the ways you've chosen it over and over and over and even have it going on in your life right now. You do all that. And then you're like, okay, I'm doing my work. Got my therapist. Got my bike that I'm riding, I got everything going on, I'm changing my diet, blah, blah, blah. You turn it over, and then at some point in the work, there is a second, deeper confrontation. And Kushner says that is this moment. They are at the sea. They think they're about to be free. They think they're out. They think they beat Pharaoh. They think they're out of restriction and habit and all that stuff, keeping them back and powerless and victims, they think they're out of that, they're at the sea, and what do they hear coming? Pharaoh's chariots. 
And there is nothing more terrifying than the second encounter with Pharaoh. And that is this moment. So, okay, so if we hold this moment in that kind of a way, some of what's going on makes a lot of sense in the Torah text, right? Because what is everybody saying? Mazot! What is this? Right? Nobody can tolerate what's happening. Nobody can stand what's going on. Everybody's got their drama, right? All parts of us have their drama. The perpetrator, the victim, right? The, the hero child. You know, we, we, we have a bunch of parts and when we come to the like deepest confrontation with self and who we want to be, mmm, ain't nobody happy, right? Ain't none of them happy. Because we start to upset how everybody has learned to get along. How the parliament of the personality, as Chef of Gold calls it, um, has learned to get along. And when you upset that, right, it's terrifying and it is explosive, right? Okay, that is the moment we're dealing with here, uh, according to Kushner. And, and it's not just a modern interpretation. I mean, we're using modern terminology. The rabbis have always understood the going out from Egypt as happening. Hayom! Today, will you leave the narrow, constricted places, they say? Don't read Mitzrayim, don't read Egypt. Mitzrayim, read Meitzarim. Will you go out from the narrows? Will you go out from stuckness? It's, it's, the invitation is given every day. And the rabbis say it takes a great deal of courage to trust that we can actually do that. All right, Mark, did you want to say something? You know, uh, I think there's very little left to say from a psychoanalytic point of view. I mean, it's all been said. It could be translated into psychoanalytic language more clearly. But I think one thing uh, to uh, to say about it is that it seems to me that this represents um, a kind of moment of transition um, from a two-person psychology to a three-person psychology. Um, let me try not to talk in jargon. Um, the, the infant um, originally has, a, um, as far as anybody can tell, a fantasy of omnipotence and a relative, it, it's relative, it's not absolute, but a relative uh, lack of connection with external reality. That slowly changes. And uh, in that process, the infant seeds its sense of omnipotence to the caretaker and sees the caretaker as omnipotent. That still involves uh, really just the infant and one object. Um, but as the infant becomes, um, encounters uh, difficulties in, in reality or uh, matures or both at the same time, obviously, um, there is a transition point where the infant becomes aware of a third object in, in, a, in a standard nuclear family that would probably be father and, um, and enters into the, the whole complexity of the Oedipal situation. But one, one theme in that has to do with the, the panic that is involved in giving up a sense of omnipotence mm-hmm. And giving up uh, what analysts call relentless hope, um, that is the, uh, the uh, attachment to an earlier sense of security 
in the uh, even though that's incompatible with contemporary reality. Okay, so Mark just essentially broke down like the whole story here. Um, right. So, right, the panic at getting it that we are not in control. The panic that comes when we have to give up relentless hope that we're not going to fall next time we try to go down those stairs, right? That the, the panic at I'm, I might get hurt again, I you know I might fail again. Um, that 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 is that is what we deal with the rest of our lives, right? And what I hear you saying is in a healthy situation. We, we learn resilience. You know, we learn, okay, I'm, yeah, it's possible I'm going to fall, but those two folks over there usually help pick me up. And sometimes I get a treat, right? Sometimes there's ice cream involved. And, and uh, Amy, Amy, also, yeah. also with individuation. Oh, here goes Siegel. Just, <laughs> I knew just it. To go, just to go forward with what Mark said, with individuation, the child in a healthy environment can have rapprochement when they go out in the world and it starts getting too panicky, they can come back to get a fix of stability. And next time they can, they're able to go out a little bit further. Right. At some point they might be able to, I don't know, go to UCLA. Let's just say. Maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> knowing like they can come home if they really, the, really, really need to, and they can come home. And do their laundry. Yeah. And do laundry, exactly. Right. Thank you, Richard. So a, a really important thing is that, you know, part of health is being able to risk, being able to go further, right, um, and risk more, like, as we get more experience of safety reinforced, that it will be there. Right. And it becomes, you know, of course, other people, our friend group, our, you know, our Torah study group. I think the other interesting thing with what Richard and Mark have said is that, we can look at this from the modern psychoanalytic point of view or psychological point of view, but it began in the Torah. And the uh, what was the expression you used? It's the encyclopedia of the Jewish psyche thousands of years ago. And the insight in this story that applies just as richly today, maybe even more so today, is what's amazing to me. Yeah. And that when people say, you know, is what happened in the Bible true, Rabbi? Well, hello, like, right? Like, of course it's true because we're talking about mythology. We're talking about human beings. And we love to think we are so much more sophisticated, right? And really, human beings have not changed a lot. So on the one hand, it is like, wow, it's all here thousands of years ago. And on the other hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, duh. We, because these are human beings writing these stories. So they're, you know, they of course don't have our, you know, language for unpacking it, but I think they're writing exactly what they know to be the human psych, you know, the human experience. And there's chutzpah too. <laughs> okay, I just, I don't get the metaphor though, because when you have your backs to the sea, there's nowhere to go back to. There are no parents out there to go home to from UCLA. Right. So, so right. where is the safety? Where is there the, safety? The real terror where of is the story it? is there is no safety. Where is there safety? There's only safety in you. Where's their safety? Thank you. What? God. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. All Lisa, right. right. Their safety is that they keep looking in the wrong place. That's the whole problem here. They're looking in the wrong place because it's too hard. 
it's easier if I could go home. But what if I can't go home? Then what? We have to get to a place where, right, it's not going to be mom's house anymore. <laughs> we have to move to a place of grown up. Where, um, where it's now out, of, it's, it's in us. It's in our relationship to trusting that the universe is a loving place, that we will figure it out, that it's happened before we've fallen and there have been people to pick us up. There'll be somebody to pick us up, which is why it is so devastating and so shocking to people. I've seen it for 25 years. They are shocked at what happens to them when their parents die in their 80s. Like, it's not a shock to anyone else that somebody necessarily dies in their 80s. That's, uh, you know, that's 90s, uh, 90, in their 90s. Sorry. Of course, Judith. In their, I mean, they're in their late 90s. Um, so that's not a shock. But what people are not prepared for, because they've been out of home for so long, they're not prepared for what it means that now it really is gone. It really is gone. Whatever your relationship with them, like, it's really gone. That that reference point back is really gone, and it's it's. My, my my atheist parents would say that falling back on God is also a crutch. It's like going back to your parents. Right, but thank God we're not your parents, <laughs> right? We we don't have that limiting, limited divine being. But it just pushes it further away. I mean, the whole it, No, it locates it in truth. The truth. What is the truth? Where is your safety? Truly. The, safe, the safety is in trusting yeah, but yourself. but you don't do it by yourself. If you were on a you know, desert island, would you feel so safe? But your parents made you what you are, the person who can feel so safe. So they instill yourself. a sense that there are other people who can help keep us safe. Mm. Your partner, I hope, yeah. is one of them. Do you not find safety there? Yeah, but he could die. Well, of course, but in his late 90s, right, um, right. but the point is there, there are lots of people now, hopefully, that we bring into our life where we do locate safety. Okay, but so why push it out further to God? Because, first of all, this is a religious story. <laughs> I mean, th- these are people who, and, and I personally would use that language. I would say my safety lies in trusting that the universe is a loving place and that I am held mm-hmm. and seen and known, and that doesn't always have to be by a person. That is sometimes, truly for me, I use God language for it. Other people might not, but I don't mean a being who's going to take care of me. Mm -hmm. I mean I trust that I'm safe, resting in the care of the universe. Okay, so you're saying that the maturity of this people is realizing that... Right, and they're not there yet. Right, they're not there. That's why we're staying here. Because this is the okay, we got hands all over the place here. Um, so we, um, so we're at this moment where they're they're not there. They they have not matured enough. And guess what? This generation isn't going to. Just I was just thinking, if you have as your experience, both as a human and in this story, a people of being enslaved and not being taken care of, doesn't that tie in with what you were saying? last week or the week before, that then that's why they have to roam in the desert because they don't have that resilience or that place of safety to fall. They don't trust that place of safety to fall back on? I think so. Mark? When you talk about God providing safety, God has had in the heart of Pharaoh uh, through the plagues. He kept getting uh, to show more and more power. 
and that here he's going to show even additional power uh, when he had in the hearts of the Egyptians so that the Egyptians would chase the Israelites. And again, to show the power that not only can, can he open the sea, but he can destroy the enemy again. So continually trying to show his power while hurting others, if you will. Yeah. And uh, but he's but the power that God is showing is as if uh, Moses had an army, and this right. is the belief is the army. Right, I, and this but ties in with what you test. said what you said last week, which was you said you finally kind of got to a point where you're like you know now I get it. God wasn't just showing the Egyptians; it, God was showing the Israelites because they hadn't had an experience of safety, and so God is trying to show them, "I got this. I can hold you. I can protect you." Over and over and over and over. Okay, sh- that's another topic. <laughs> Mark, he's not going to let it go. I know. You know, I think uh, if we look at this as a myth or as a depiction of the internal workings of the psyche, there is something that's really crucial here, and that is the notion of an internalized object. And the uh, way in which that those uh, internalized objects, which are obviously built up over long periods of time, partly out of experience and partly out of the infant's capacity to understand in various ways, colored by the infant's own internal affect, internal drives, and so on. But once those internal objects are established, they're, they're not immutable, but they're very hard to change. But whether one trusts in the power of uh, some sort of power in the universe or cannot uh, accept something like that is, uh, is um, conditioned very strongly, not just by external experience or argumentation or demonstration of anything relating to external reality. That's part of the equation, but a very much more important, important part of it is the capacity to, uh, to um, take in certain kinds of feelings, manifest certain kinds of attitudes based on the internal objects that have been built up so that all of these other things that have to do with external reality have their own legitimacy and need to be talked about in their own terms. But the, the, uh, the notion of belief or confidence or in the provision of the external world is largely determined by the internal objects and not mm-hmm. by external circumstances. Yeah. And that's what we see, right? That's what we see because <laughs> even though there's ten plagues, even though the sea parts, even though, even though, even though, like they can't do it. They don't have those internalized in your language, internalized objects. Like so no so no matter what no matter what happens in external reality, they can't get there. And I think God, that's what God finally learns in the desert. After they refuse to fight, and God says, I'm going to fight for you. Don't worry about it. And they refuse. He's like, I'm done. Our character. George? Yes. Uh, one difference here, at least in, in this part, is that uh, with the um, the blood in the doorpost, people chose to opt in. Mm-hmm. This one, 
though I've heard other interpretations, <laughs> Moses raises his arm and splits the sea. But there's some, one of our rabbis said somebody, an individual had to act uh, first. Nachshon ben Abinadav is the Midrash that yeah. Nachshon moves in. Now, now, does that contradict this? Not that I'm... For a, me, no. And I'll tell you why. Because where I look for that Midrash is when it says, God says, Ma, why are you crying out? To, what is this that you're crying out to me? Talk to the people, Vayisa'u, and they will move forward. Tell them to move forward. So there's an interpretation of that that says, they move, and that's when the sea can part. No matter what Moshe does, it's not going to part till they move forward. Until I mean, that... Individual action. That, that's where, that's what, I mean, that's how I read it, because that's how I prefer to read it. But, um, okay. Yes, I prefer the individual actions. Right. Okay. So let's go to, let's go to Zornberg. She's just amazing. Um, okay. So I, I put for you on the sheet. Okay. And somebody said, I love, they said last week, where do we find that sheet on Safari? So just be clear, I put these together. I make these for you. These sheets. And now I've gotten myself, Lee Conrad's walked into my office yesterday and saw like all these papers. And it's like, I have now gotten myself into doing this every week. All right. So, so you have to look for me on Safaria because these are my sheets. Um, okay. So what I did was I put these texts that we just quoted on here so we can be reminded of them and have them like stacked before we get to Zornberg. Yes. Thank you. All right. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, what does he say? Mazotasinu. What is this we have done? As Pharaoh draws near, greatly frightened, the Israelites cry out and they say, Mazotasita. What is this you have done to Moshe? So Pharaoh says, what is this we've done? And then the people say, what is this you have done, Moshe? All right, are we good? All right, we're going to put them down. Mazotasita, what is this you have done, say the people? Then, what does God say to Moshe? Matitzakelai, what is this you crying out to me? It doesn't say lama, by the way, which is interesting. It doesn't say why. Ma, what, God says. What? Literally. God doesn't say why are you crying. God says, what? You're crying out to me? Tell them to move, George. Okay. Um, but, and then we get, finally, we get, I love this. Moses cries out to God saying, Ma, what am I to do with these people? Right? They start complaining because they don't have water. So they're not very long out of the, out of Egypt before they're like, we don't have water. We're going to die. What have you done? And Moshe says to God, what am I supposed to do with these people? All right. Aviva Zornberg says, these questions can be divided, can be divided into simple what questions and more sophisticated, effectively, why questions. I'm suggesting, she says, that even the simple ma questions veil corrosive moral challenges. The ma, right? Dun, 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 dun. The ma questions that demand a why translation 
are more manifestly reflective, subversive, restless. Right? So she's saying it's not just a simple what have you done. That doesn't make any sense. They know what what has they're asking a what question that needs a why answer. What is this that we have done? Pharaoh asks himself after releasing the Hebrew slaves. What is this that you've done to us and taking us out of Egypt? The Israelites ask Moses. Why are you crying out to me? God asks Moses. Why are you quarreling with me? Why are you testing God? Moses asks the people. Why then have you brought us out from Egypt? The people ask Moses. These questions interrogate the narrative of redemption. The Ma tries to push to the limit of the known, the obvious. To ask what or why is not to ask for scientific definitions, but to probe the unknown, to insist on depths yet to be plumbed. They know what's happened. What are they really asking for? I think of Zornberg, so hard to get my head around that. I'm not sure. But I think what she's saying is, they're trying to get past the obvious and what's known, and they're pushing towards something else. What Pharaoh has, and so now she talks about some of what's happening in our psychodynamic model. What Pharaoh has lost is the sense of gravitas, of kavod, honor, importance, weight. In all his resistance to God, I shall not release the Israelites, he was involved in the high drama of being needed by God. Now, in obeying God, he subsides in a kind of spiritual breakdown. It is to recapture that ultimately suicidal sense of drama that he pursues the Israelites. In modern terms, we might speak of a sadomasochistic pathology in which the tormentor requires the excitement of breaking taboos, the battle with conscience to give substance to his life. So in this sense, George, Pharaoh loved that God hardened his heart because it made God kept coming back to him. He was still the center of God's attention. This big old powerful Yahweh business was in relationship in primary ways to Paro. And he can't stand it when that's over, even though it was painful, even though it's going to be completely destructive he cannot let it go he cannot stand it that he's not the center of Yahweh's attention and so goes on this suicidal mission to regain the focus of this amazing power huh huh how could that possibly be that we would keep going after something that is completely destructive to us. Could you imagine? Who would do such a thing? <laughs> right? Moth meat flame. This, this, I think, is a brilliant interpretation of what's happening actually for Pharaoh. Um, and on some level, the Egyptians, like giving up, you know, being the, the center of attention, no matter how, how painful and scary that might be. When it goes away, it's like, Really? This is it? This is life now? Right? I know lots of people who have used, and this is an extreme example, but, you know, there's ways that we hurt ourselves, self-harm, sometimes literally, by cutting, by doing whatever, that when it stops, yeah, the pain stops, but so does a certain kind of something that comes from focusing on that. 
that when it's gone, there's this vacuum of, wait, this is it? This is, this is the how I'm supposed to live? Right? Sober people have to talk to me a lot about that. Wait, what? Like I'm supposed to go to events sober? Wait, forever? No, just for today. But you know, but it's like, right? Cause it's like, that's so boring. How, how do people live these boring lives? This, the, this, the, whatever that stimulus is, is gone. And I think it's a brilliant interpretation because you scratch your hand and go, Pharaoh, really? Really? But really? Yeah, really. <laughs> right? That's, that's what we do. All right. Particularly when we're not in a good place. If we couple this process of self-knowledge with the parallel ma question asked by the Israelites, what is this that you've done to us? A similar pathology emerges. Retrospectively, the people realize the drama strangely satisfying of being the victims, the desired ones in a battle between God and Paro. Now, released from the perverse fascination of the Egypt situation, they face a cruel death in the wilderness, the end of the story. In asking, what is this you have done? They are really reproaching Moses. Why on earth did you do it? emphasizing the losses entailed in a redemption that on the face of it seemed entirely benign. The effect is to move beyond the world of facile rationalizations to become aware of incongruities, gaps between the public narrative and the inner debate. In this sense, the people's challenge, ugly, ungrateful, and misdirected as it may be, represents a necessary truthfulness, a way of opening up a new depth of dialogue with Moses and with God. Right? So it looks like this is a completely loving, fantastic thing that's been done for them. But they're getting it that it's not so happy, this business of not being fought over anymore. This business of, wait, that's it? That's it? Now we're free? What? Now we go to the mall? Like, what? Just like Pharaoh. It's like, wait, what? We're not the victims? We don't get to gushry anymore? We don't get to talk about how much suffering we've been through? And then we're just supposed to live? Like the rest of our, what, desert lives? Like that? In asking, why did you do this to us? She, I think, again, I think, Zornberg is suggesting they are admitting that what looked like such a glorious thing, we're free, we're free, is really more complicated. And they are admitting their internal conflict with what it means to now have to take responsibility and now have to be grown-ups, right? Some freshmen at UCLA are starting to understand a little bit about that, right? You know, being free ain't all it's cracked up to be. When you have to own all the consequences, when you have to make all the decisions, when the deadline is February 7th. And they, in asking this question, in reproaching Moses, what she's saying is, however misdirected that might be, they are trying to talk about it. They're trying to admit they're conflicted. And they're trying to get an answer from the only authorities they know. Even though it's misdirected. Right? A loving parent, right? How many times have you gotten a question when you're like, I know what's behind that question. That's not a question. That is not a question. 
right? That is a criticism. Um, okay, well, what's happening, right? That that they need to criticize my decision or how I did. Like, what what's happening for them? What's going on? That's a different level of conversation between parent and child than you've had before. And that's what I think Zornberg is saying they are actually trying to do. Is someone going to talk? Uh, actually, I have a question. Okay. Um, to what extent, you know, we the way you talk about it is these uh, Israelites with their, or children of Israel with their slave mentality and Moses is stuck with them. To what extent do you think Moses shares that mentality and has to overcome the same, the, all these things that we're talking about today? Is is Moses above that and better than that? Or is he have, is he fighting the same demons, you could say? I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah. What your I, well, remember, Moshe comes from different conditions. Moshe hasn't suffered slavery. You, you know what I mean? He's he's had to go out there. He had to become a ref. He became a refugee, and then you know lived out in the desert. But we don't have evidence that that, that Moshe suffered. I think Moshe is complicated. I really do. Um, I think he's very complicated. I think his adoption is complicated. I think his identifying later with Hebrews is complicated. I think growing up in privilege that you didn't really earn because you really weren't born to the princess and then having to lead a people that's been so beat up by the people you were raised with. I just th- I think Moshe is very complicated, but it's not what they're dealing with. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's just an interesting... It's like yeah. Moshe, you know, Moshe is a, is a healthy, mature leader who also has his limitations right. because and, of his own biography and his own experience and his own whatever, but you know, and finally gets pushed past the breaking point. Yeah, I mean, him pitching his tent outside. You know, it's easy as an extremely complicated mm-hmm. person, but I guess he, you could you could probably write a whole thing on just, and people have, I'm sure, you know, just on his psychology. It's yes. not, it's a different, he's going through a different, a different travel. Yes, yeah. and I, ca- I can't recommend highly enough um, uh, Maurice Harris's book, Moses, A Stranger Among Us. It, it is one of the best I've ever read on Moses, and it's not big. Um, you know, like it, it, it's it's a beautiful, a beautiful discussion of What's Moses. Um, it's called Moses, A Stranger Among Us by Maurice Harris, a good reconstructionist, um, but a really wonderful uh all the way back to the midwives and Yocheved and, you know, like really, really looking at Moshe and, and the people in his life and all of those things that came to bear on who he is. And very, and it's a very good read because it really opens up how complicated Moshe is. He's a stranger and he's the leader, but he's not of them. But he kind of is, but he isn't really. Do you, you know what I mean, Lane? So it just is it's, he's very complicated. I wonder if a comparison is uh, the complaints uh, a white person writing about the black experience, and yeah. whether it's it's just a it's a different point of view, but it's somewhat real, from but from a different point of view. Yeah. Um, okay. So they so the people have cried out right at Moshe, really accusing Moshe essentially of this wasn't such a great idea, maybe this redemption business. Um, at the very least, the people cry out of primal fear, right? We get that. We get one of the reasons they're crying out is they're, they hear chariots and there's an ocean in front, a sea in front of them. 
Moses responds, I love this, by speaking of vision. That sentence, that tangled sentence we tried to unpack. See the deliverance which God will work for you today. For the way you see the Egyptians, you will never see them again. The way you see them, Hayom, today, you will never see them again. That is a critical difference in translation and in interpretation. See what she did? Is the Torah uses see. The Egyptians that you see today, what she's saying is you will never see them that way again. Instead of reassuring them about the objective outcome of the present crisis, meaning it's going to be okay, there's going to be a parting here, right? There's going to be a highway, don't worry. That's not how Moshe answers. So rather than talking about the objective outcome of the present crisis, he speaks about their personal perspective. Fear is born of a way of seeing. A changed way of seeing will change their feeling and thinking. It is this level of experience that the word ma addresses. Pharaoh recognizes an unspeakable loss in in saying ma. Moshe responds to the challenge of adversary narratives by speaking of fear and personal vision. Right? So my my take, which I added here because I was afraid I would forget it. Um, what if we addressed adversary narratives this way, right? Redirecting the conversation to speaking, identifying possibly, um, of fear and personal vision. I'll give you an example. I was at Shabbat at the Rocks. A guy comes up, Israeli, very clearly an Israeli, and he starts talking to me, and, we, and we're having this conversation, and he's talking about something horrible that had happened, and and I responded with, I know that's horrible, and you know, given the government that's in place right now, we can understand that it's a powder keg over there. And he's like, he got furious and got came at me with, you are denigrating the experience of every Jew and every Israeli by even suggesting there's a relationship. And like, he was so angry that I was like, and I said, that is not true. That is not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is, right, so, and then I was like, this is just stupid. This is just stupid. This is not going to go anywhere. It's Shabbat on the flipping rocks. I'm not doing this right now. But what I said was, you know what? I would love to have lunch with you. Would you be willing to sit with me and have lunch? And he said, why would you want to do that? I said, because I would really like to understand how you've gotten to where you've gotten, like how you, how it is that you think the way you think, and to explore, is there a possibility you know, that, that if there's something to be said by both, whatever I said, and, and he said, if you're serious, then yes. We're having lunch on Wednesday. But it, it was a big shift for me, right? I'm an Aries, <laughs> right? Um, it's coming, March 21. So, um, because it's an adversary narrative, Right. And and my usual response is, why just because you say it, does it make it so like listen to yourself? And it was just like, Amy, that is not there's fear and a personal way of seeing things for him that leaves him unable to hear you. Okay, well, what if I can over lunch identify fear and his personal vision and own mine 
and see if there isn't another kind of conversation that can happen, which is what Zornberg, I think, is talking about. Stop arguing your perspective and the facts. Start talking about the fact that we have perspectives. How did they get formed? Why are we so locked into them? What is it I'm afraid of? If you can't admit, I might have a point. What are you afraid of? If I actually might have a point, right? Like what, that's what, that's where we have got to start getting. I think if we're going to deal in any constructive way with the polarization that is only getting worse. And what if we asked of each other to look at and shift our personal vision, moving it from fear to possibility? Is there a possibility it's not a zero sum game and I might be right too? Is there a possibility? What does that bring up for you if there's a possibility that that's so? And let's talk about that. And that's where, that's where healing our own perspectives, including mine, and I'm saying truly mine too, um, that, that that's a way that we can start, okay, getting past our own fear, our own limitations and how we see things and start getting to another level maybe, of engagement. So I think uh, beneath that, which is what she wrote, you have to reframe the whole scene. That until you reframed the scene you just played out, there was no way to go to the next step, let's have lunch. And it's the same thing here in the desert. As long as they're stuck in that narrative of mazot, they can't, they're not open to redefining a new experience. And it's, it's in the reframing of the story within your soul, within yourself, that the possibility of transformation. Yeah, I occurs. think that's what she's saying, Moshe's saying. Right. I think Zornberg is saying that's exactly what Moshe's saying. Until you see things differently, it's not going to change that you keep going, Mazot, what have you done to us? Right? That question won't change until your perception of the situation changes. And um, you're, you'll never see them that way again because you don't. Once your eyes are opened, you, you may react, you may go there, but then you're like, uh-huh, there it is. Right? You, you just don't ever see it the same way again once you really get it. Kayla? So I, I get what we're saying and just look like thinking of the story mm-hmm. as a story. Like, what do you think they had to do? Cause I can't imagine uh, Moses is saying this and then instantly they change how they see the Egyptians and Pharaoh. So like, isn't there something more that has to be done for them to now act and move forward? They will. They're going to move through the sea. God's right. going to take care of it. So that's it. He just said it, and then they just said, okay, and... Right, and then okay. they never do it. Okay. Right? They, they never get there. We know that. But, he, but I think, I mean, what's, what's important to me is I never heard that before in his words to them. I never heard that until I read Zornberg, right? So it's like, he's, I'm saying that I believe her. Like, I love that interpretation. That what he's saying is you, it isn't that the sea's going to open, don't worry. He's addressing another level. He's addressing the real issue, which is their fear, you know, the way they see the Egyptians as all-powerful. And I love that, that he's trying to get at 
what's actually underneath it. And I think it's just very helpful for us today to remember that that's how attitudes shift, not by arguing with somebody the facts. Don't you love when people send you an article because they know you're on the other side of an issue and they send you an article? Because if you just read these facts, you're now going to change your mind and agree with them. It's like he's... I think it's just so helpful and instructive for us to, we have to get below that or above that, whatever, um, to get at what really drives our attachment and reactivity to a certain position. All of us. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I gotta own mine too. Yeah, Barbara. Okay. I just have hung up on one small thing. Okay. You take this little population of slaves. Yeah. And you, they, you get them all fired up. They do the blood on the lintel and they defy the powers that be. They follow you into the desert. They're at the ocean, at the sea. They're hearing the horses and all the army coming. They're terrified. They have no tools to be free. They don't know. I think God and Moses missed a missed a step <laughs> it doesn't it seem like an all-powerful being even in a story should say i know this is hard <laughs> something training i mean you take- i think that's what moshe's saying and then the sea is going to open and they go through they are rescued but they don't know how to rescue themselves no so that's what they're supposed to learn in the desert but how they're supposed to build a mishkan. They're supposed to have a priesthood. They're supposed to offer sacrifices. They're supposed to identify when they've done wrong. They get a Torah. Sorry. That's the sorry. And and you're right. The, the point is not freedom. The point is not crossing the sea. The point is Sinai. That is the point. I freed you to be for you, God. Not so you can have a party. Not so you can go shopping. I freed you so you can be free to choose to worship me the way I've told you you need to by building a just and equitable society. And here are the rules for that. And they get it. And they say yes. And they opt in. And they blow it right away. That's where, right, God's trying. <laughs> right? Moshe's trying. And they, they can't do it. So they're not expected in this moment. I don't think to, to get it, but they are supposed to walk, <laughs> which is hard enough, but they're supposed to walk and they do, but then they can't, they can't do the next piece, which is, okay, we're going to show you. We know you were never taught how to be free. We're going to show you. Here it is. Here's the plan. Here's everything you have to do and not do. And they can't do it. So the whole Torah is a story of failure. Ultimately, it's one of the most powerful stories in the Torah. It's one of the most powerful in the Torah. I I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. And I don't think there's a human alive who's done any kind of work on themselves who can't resonate on some level with some of this. All right, Lee, speak. I just I feel like I need I feel like someone should defend the Israelites a little bit. Like I just <laughs> like God is trying. Lee's gonna defend trying. the Jews. But like I also think that like they're trying. Like they, Mm -hmm. to the point of them having limited tools and like maybe sort of like a lack of preparation. To me, there's something in this story about like being afraid and doing it anyway, that like they do walk, like they do walk into the sea, like they do take, they do keep taking the next step. And that to me feels just as significant as all of the sort of 
kvetching and moaning. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And and it turns out if you want to have Rahmanis for them, what you can argue is they did their best. They were right. limited, right? And they they thought they did their best. They didn't have a healthy upbringing, right? And they didn't have a healthy place and safe place to check it, right? And they did their best. And they that that's what they could do is is what they did. When I hear someone say they were trying, I'm reminded of my father saying to me, and yes, sometimes you're more trying than others. Well, that is certainly the Jews. Um, all right, one more, and then we're going to uh, say Mishvira. You know, uh, one of the things that I think is so striking about this is that this is a depiction of the course of uh, uh, psychoanalytic therapy. Right. Uh, and this this is... He's talking about the dynamics of the transference and um, the crossing of the Red Sea is not, uh, from a psychoanalytic point of view, that would not be what would be curative. That would, that's, that's vital, it's important in a sense, but it is the interpretation of that transference and the, and the fear and the understanding that comes through the interpretation of the transference of why there was such a need to maintain the masochistic position. Right. And, and so that, that should have been Sinai. That should have been their Sinai, right? Their, their deep understanding of what was going on, and now we're not in that same place. I, I just wanted to, I remember, yes, <laughs> it had to do with the definition of freedom. The freedom was to choose to follow the Torah and go to Sinai which is not, well, the choice was freedom, but then you are now choosing another set of laws. Correct. If you will. That the real, for your friend of mine, when he retired after a month, he said he doesn't know what to do. Total freedom, no restrictions on what he can do. So that indeed one needs a set of laws, if you will. And if we as a society didn't have laws, none of us would be free. We'd all be, you know, held captive by how strong am I? Who can I fight off? Right? And so, um, exactly. So that's that's the point of Sinai is you are free to build a society in which everyone can be free. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org